0: Today, we're in chapter 19 of 1 Kings under a juniper tree. We come to our second sermon in our three-part sermon series on the person of Elijah. In our first sermon, Elijah the prophet pounced on the scene, pounced on Ahab like a cat pouncing on a mouse. He came from nowhere. He was swift, and he said, There will be neither dew nor rain until I give the command. He himself retreated to the brook Kirith. The birds brought him bread and meat in the morning and the evening. He had seen the provision of God. Also, he had seen the miraculous work of God and the life of the widow who housed him and protected him and fed him. Because of her faith, God gave her an unceasing supply of oil and flour when he was, she was at the end of her barrel. In fact, she had experienced no less than the resurrection power of God. Her son got sick and died. Elijah called out three times, Lord, let life return. Lord, let life return. Lord, let life return. And the child was literally resurrected. He'd also experienced the power of God on Mount Carmel, one of the greatest acts of God in all the Old Testament. More than 450 prophets of Baal against one prophet of God, Elijah. Two altars built, one to Baal and one to Yahweh. The bulls prepared, the wood stacked 450 prophets of Baal, hour after hour, they called upon their God, even torturing themselves to get his attention, trying to light the fire by the power of Baal, the God of fertility. But there was no fire. They danced and they pranced and there was absolute full motion, but there is no motion of fire. Elijah adds water to his stack of wood to make sure that everybody understands that the power of God is unstoppable. He prays and fire falls from heaven and burns the bull, the wood. It burns even the water and the stones. The people shout in unison, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is the God. Remembering the commandment of Moses that prophets that are false ought to perish. Well, Elijah shouts to the people to gather the prophets of Baal and they seize them and kill them, 450. Then after no rain for three and a half years, it all starts with a cloud no bigger than the size of a man's hand coming from the sea, rising up. And then there's the sweet, heavy rain Elijah then runs ahead of Ahab's chariots. Seventeen miles he runs the race, outrunning the horses all the way back to Jezreel. After seeing the hand and work of God like that, you could have run the race as well. Isn't it glorious to follow God when he acts so openly and plainly and faithfully on your behalf? But what if God is silent? What if there is no powerful, merciful, gracious intervention from God? What if the flour and the oil do run out? What if the ravens don't show up with the bread and the meat? And what if no fire blazes down from heaven? Then what? Congregation, our second sermon this morning could hardly be any more different than our first. We have gone with Elijah last week to Mount Carmel where God acted in such a visible way that we'd feel that anyone who didn't believe in God was a fool. The people in unison shouted the lordship of Yahweh. But today we go with the prophet to Mount Horeb where God is silent and we wonder if anyone but a fool Could believe in a God who's silent. Jezebel, that idol worshiping wife of Ahab, got word that Elijah had killed her prophets. You tell Elijah that if I don't make him as dead as those prophets of mine by this time tomorrow, may the gods do worse to me. He was scared. He runs, runs for his life all the way to Beersheba. He leaves his servant behind. He abandons his ministry. He quits the prophetic ministry and he runs, trembling with fear, sick with despair, overcome by self pity. Elijah sat under a juniper tree. Look at verse 4 of chapter 19. He says something like this I've had it, Lord. It's enough. Go ahead and take my life. Just let it all end right now. I'm the only one who's left, who serves you. Have you ever been under a juniper tree with Elijah? When you're so sad, you don't think you'll ever be happy again. When depression is ravaging your mind, your spirit and your body. When you have that sense of despair and hopelessness, of failure and shame and doubt. Congregation, sometimes the lowest lows come after the highest highs. Fire from heaven is sometimes followed by fear from hell. Horeb awaits us after Mount Carmel. In the book, Reclaiming the Fire, Stephen Bergler suggests One of the major causes of emotional collapse among successful workers is encore anxiety. He describes this as a fear that you can't match what you did before, that you won't be able to repeat or sustain earlier achievements. I mean, how many times is God going to raise the dead and send fire from heaven to dry up the water and light the wood? Sometimes, like Elijah... We can have our downest days after our greatest days. It's after our Mount Carmel experience that we find ourselves arriving at Mount Horeb. After the baby is born, after the move to the new town is made, after the dissertation or thesis is written, after the wedding has been celebrated. With every wave of success, it seems that literally there is an undertow of depression pulling back. Indeed, there is no higher high than the high of walking on the moon. Can anybody top the high of walking on the moon? In fact, Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut who walked on the moon discovered there was not much left to life after he walked on the moon. After he'd zoomed to the zenith, it seemed over. And his autobiographies return to Earth in magnificent desolation. We have accounts of Aldrin's struggle with clinical depression and alcoholism and the years following his NASA career. For Buzz, Aldrin going from the moon down to the mundane was just too much. When depression sits in, we lose our sleep, we have chronic exhaustion, we feel hopeless. We have acute anxiety, we feel overwhelmed, we feel washed up, burned out, hopeless and helpless. We exhibit poor concentration, general irritability, unprovoked anger, resentment toward others, an inability to sleep, an increased or decreased appetite, and our emotional and physical health is a wreck. Psychologist E. Carol Webster, who deals with success stress says, we experience depression from reaching the top and then feeling as if there is nowhere else to go. Well, let's look at the symptoms of our prophet Elijah. First of all, he had a depreciation for his self-worth in nineteen four. He had a depreciation for his self-worth in nineteen four. I'm worthless, he says. I am no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than anybody who came before me. I'm no good, he says in nineteen four. Once I buried a 31-year-old computer genius. He'd been valedictorian of his high school. He had made all A's in college, graduating summa cum laude. When he took calculus, now when he took calculus, he refused to memorize the formulas because he said, I will forget the formulas. I want to understand, understand calculus at a philosophical level. Now you try that one. I settle for the formulas. I want to understand calculus at a philosophical form. As a child, he locked himself in the room to memorize the dictionary. Yet I buried him at age 31. Already reached the top. He had no idea of his worth or his value in the eyes of God. He felt helpless, hopeless, and worthless. What a waste. Secondly, in 1910, he has a depreciating value of his work. Not only did he self-depreciate his worth, but also he depreciated his work. Look at verse 10 of chapter 19. He kind of repeats the same message in verse 14. All my work's in vain, he's saying. I'm a prophet. I've been trying to tell these people, oh God, to obey your covenant, to worship you. But instead, they have broken down the altars. They've walked all over the covenant. They don't obey. They've rejected everything. And they've rejected God. And they've rejected me. And I'm not doing any good in my work. In those moments of depression, we feel like nothing that we do could possibly make a difference. Everything we do in church, everything we do in the community, everything we do all around us seems to absolutely accomplish nothing. Here's a third thing we see. That is he overstates the severity of his problem. He overstates the severity of his problem. In 1822 he says, I'm the only prophet left. In 1910 B he says, I'm the only prophet left. In 14b, he says again, I'm the only true prophet of God left. Three times he says in this saga, I'm, I'm it, God, I'm the only guy, you God. Now Elijah does have some problems. When a crazy queen and an evil king are trying to kill you, you have some real problems. But surely he can see. That the God who destroyed the 450 prophets of Baal would also be able to handle Jezebel, don't you think? And would you really be afraid of death if you'd just been the instrument for the resurrection of a lad who was dead? He exaggerates his troubles. We learn later in verse 18 that he wasn't the only one left, there were seven thousand prophets of God who had not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, Elijah, you've got some problems, but you've overstated them. You you aren't the only one left. Sometimes it seems in the quietness of the night that our problems begin to grow larger than life, and we toss and turn on our bed of anxiety and depression and stress, only to awaken and realize in the morning sun, our problems are not as bad as we'd imagined. You've been there. A lot of you have, at one time or another, joined Elijah under the juniper tree. Here's a fourth thing. He lost his vision. The stress and anxiety of life, He lost his vision for what God had called him to do. 14b, he says, I'm not making any difference. I'm no good. I'm no better than anybody else. He lost his sense of vision, which drove him and compelled him, encouraged to be a prophet of God. Some of you here this morning, you join Elijah right there. You join Elijah in sadness and depression, anxiety and a sense of futility and what God has called you to do. You have lost your vision for God's touch on your life. What happens next to Elijah as he sits on that tree As an intervention, a quiet intervention of grace. Here's the steps to solve the prophet's problems. Number one, he has some sleep. Verses verses 5 through 8, he actually sleeps. He is spent emotionally and physically fighting Baal and trying to light the fire there on Mount Carmel. He's drained. Sleep is a remarkable gift from God. The psalmist says that God gives sleep to his beloved. And as he slept, who was it? An angel, the text tells us, woke him up, said, go and eat. There's a a cake of bread and there's some water. And he eats and he sleeps some more. And the angel wakes him up and says, eat some more bread and drink some more water. You've got a long journey. Sometimes it's a quiet intervention of God in our lives, that lowly act of everyday care. Sometimes what turns the tide of sadness for us is the small and the simple. It's a call, a letter, a visit from a friend, a conversation over a cup of coffee, a good night's sleep, a dream of hope. God comes in all of these quiet, small ways. Revived by sleep and food, Elijah travels further South to, to Mount Horeb, which is really Mount Sinai, the holy mountain of God, where in the midst of the wind and the earthquake and the fire that God had given Moses the Ten Commandments and revealed his holy presence. And Elijah travels to this sacred space hoping that God will act again and the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And we too travel to sacred spaces hoping to remember our God of our childhood, the God of our past, and maybe he will help Again, Now there's a the second thing Elijah does. He talks out his frustrations with God. Verse 13. You know, so God asked him that question in verse 13. He asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Look at verse 13. What are you doing here in this cave of depression and sadness? You've lost your self-worth. You've lost your vision. You've lost your zeal for me. What are you doing here? Elijah, have you ever noticed that God often asks questions for which God already has the answer? I mean, did God really not know where Adam was? Had he lost Adam in the garden? Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was. Or when God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? God knew that Abel was dead. Or Moses, as he holds a staff, what's that in your hand? I'm not familiar with that object. What's that in your hand? God knew it was a staff in Moses' hand. Elijah, what are you doing here? I've just sent down fire from heaven. I've resurrected the dead. I've given an unceasing portion to the widow. what are you doing here? God asked Elijah what he's doing here to give Elijah the chance to tell him. God already knew the answer, but in verse 10 and verse 14, he cries out again, I'm the only one left. The people aren't obeying the covenant. They're tearing down the altars. They're not worshiping you. Nothing good's going on, God. God just lets him pour out his heart. Sometimes we're afraid to to tell God the truth. Now you think about that. You're afraid to tell God the truth because he might find out what's in your heart. God already knows. Open your heart and share. There are health-giving emotions like love and faith and hope, but there are destructive emotions like anger and fear and worry and bitterness and hatred and jealousy and self-pity, the slow killers of humanity, and Elijah had a lot of those working within him. The dean, once dean of the University of Oregon Medical School, said, more good is done over two friends at 10 o'clock in the morning over a cup of coffee than in a doctor's office all day long. More good is done between two friends at 10 o'clock in the morning over a cup of coffee than is done in the doctor's office all day long. Someone to pour your heart out to. Someone you can be honest with, knowing no judgment will come. Here's a third thing. Elijah need to get his life back in perspective. Elijah felt like God has turned his back on him. He reasoned that he had done his best to serve the Lord, but what did it get him? Nothing, it was useless, and now he's afraid of Jezebel. Depression has a way of making us think like that. We feel as if the whole world is revolving around us. When we're depressed, we become the center of our own universe. We are inward turned, and we're negative rather than positive. And we look at the immediate Those who were suicidal look for a a permanent solution to a temporary problem. We look at the immediate problem rather than the long-term results. Ultimately, depression gave Elijah, and ultimately it will give you and me a distorted view of life. Elijah needed to hear that God was still on his throne, and there were other prophets who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah climbed that formidable mountain and lodged at the cave. And God came near, and God asked in verse 13, Elijah, what are you doing here? Go stand on the mountain. And he says, I'm going to pass by, verse 11. You go stand, says God, and I'm coming. I'm going to pass by. Maybe God is passing by your heart this morning. Those on television or live stream or those here, sanctuary, maybe God through his word this morning, through the songs, through the sermon, is passing by for you. What happens next is one of the holy moments in sacred history. We bow before the mystery of what happens God has spoken before, and the wind, and the earthquake, and the fire. And so Elijah thinks when God passes by, there's going to be a catastrophic event. Oh, there was a mighty wind, wind strong enough to split the rocks, but in the wind, Yahweh was not. And after the wind, there was a mountain-shaking earthquake, but not in the earthquake was Yahweh, says the Hebrew text. And after the earthquake, there was fire, and Yahweh was not found in the fire. And after the fire, there was a silent, crushing sound. The silence at the same time is empty and full. Silence that is less than expected, but in some ways, it is more than was ever expected. A deafening, quiet there Elijah was hoping that God would reveal himself as he revealed himself before and the wind, the wind that parted the Red Sea and allowed the children of Israel to walk across on dry land. And God was in the wind, maybe God would be in the earthquake like the earth that shook on that mountain when Moses received the 10 words. And Elijah himself had just seen God's presence in fire when the fire fell from heaven and burned up the bull like at Mount Carmel, but God was not in the wind, and God was not in the earthquake, and God was not in the fire. All expected ways for God to reveal himself came and went, and God was not there, and then there was silence. Elijah covered his face not to see God, for in the silence, God. For in the silence, God. It was waiting on the Lord. Scripture calls us to wait on the Lord. Some of you are waiting today. You need to keep waiting. Wait on the Lord through injury and wait on the Lord through illness and wait on the Lord through sadness and despair, through tragedy and triumph. Wait on the Lord and wait through emptiness of soul and dryness of religion through the silent years. Wait as long as it takes for God will be there. You see, Elijah was more important than he thought he really was. He thought everything was on his shoulders. No, Elijah, there's 7,000 more prophets. We too, sometimes in our ministries, are guilty of making our, taking ourselves way too seriously. Listen, if God's work depends solely on any one of us, the mission's in trouble. But none of us is indispensable. The workmen die, but the work goes on. There's a final way. Elijah went back to work. Elijah went back to work. God gave him the twin graces of recommissioning and reassurance. At the end of the story, God says, I got a job for you to do, Elijah. Quit pouting. Get out of the cave. I've got kings for you to anoint, Haziel and Jehu. And then I need you to go find your own successor, Elijah, to take the mantle. Psychiatrist Dr. Carl Menninger was asked one time, if you felt yourself in depression, what would you do to get out? If you felt it coming on, he said, I would leave my house, I would go out, I would find somebody who needed me, and I would serve her, I would serve him. It's when we focus on self, we're sitting in the cave, that's when the darkness comes. We've gotta get up, we've gotta go back out. Get in the mainstream of life and get back to serving God's people, get back to serving God, get back to serving the church and his kingdom. It's an odd formula, but you can memorize this one. When you help others, you're helping yourselves. Some of you here today, you're just coming off a victory from God, a victory like Mount Carmel. You're sitting there under the juniper tree with a distorted view of reality and you think you're the only one left and everything God does depends on you. You think the job is too big, the enemy too formidable, and you're scared of Jezebel in your life. To you who hurt this morning, to those who are weary, to you who are seeing life today through the glasses of gray, the word of God comes. Take rest. Express your problems to God forthright and wait on the Lord to send the silence, the gentle wind of his presence, then get up and go back and serve. Oh God, thank you for using people like Elijah, people who are so much like we if your choicest men and women of Scripture, have the same discouragements we do, we know you can use us too. If a pouting prophet can call down fire from heaven, so can we. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.